If you lay gold in the dust, then the Almighty will be your gold, for then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Those are the words of Eliphaz. He was a friend of Job. Job had lost in death all of his ten children. He had lost, either through death or being stolen, all of his livestock. His wife had turned against God. And now Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, his three friends, had come and they had sat with him in sackcloth and ashes and in silence for seven days. And now they are speaking in Job 22, 24 to 26. <clears throat> if you lay gold in the dust, the Almighty will be your gold. And then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Now, when Job's trial was over, chapter 42, when his trial was over, this is what God said to Eliphaz. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Well, what could be more right more beautiful than to say, if you lay gold in the dust, the Almighty will be your gold, and you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. I regard that sentence as true, right, beautiful. And when Eliphaz spoke it, God was angry at him. So why would it anger God for Eliphaz to say, if, if God is not your gold, you're an idolater. If you're delighting in gold more than God, what's wrong? What's wrong is that Eliphaz used those words to indict Job. Verse 23, just before those verses, if you, Job, if you return to the Almighty, assuming he's not with him, if you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from you. So Eliphaz and his friends cannot conceive that there could be a man of justice and a man who values God above gold who suffers this much. They can't imagine it. Those two things, this much suffering and valuing God above gold and being a man of justice, they can't go together in one person. And they're dead wrong. 
God is angry that they would talk to Job that way. Now, the reason I'm bringing this to the beginning of the message is because I do want to talk about those words. I want to talk about if you lay gold in the dust, God will be your gold. You will delight yourself in the Almighty. I want to say that to you. Then I don't want God to get angry at me. <coughs> what would be the difference? How could that happen? So I'm alerting you so that you're aware that it is possible for a preacher to speak truth about God in a way that makes God angry. You get that? I want to heighten your vigilance as you listen. I want you to realize that every time you hear someone speak, true things may be mingled with false things. True things may be spoken with half-truths. True things may come from a proud and unloving heart. True things may be spoken in cruel ways. True things may be spoken out of balance. So there's no proportion in what's being said with what's real. It is possible for a preacher to speak truth in a way that makes God angry. <coughs> so I've alerted myself and I'm alerting you that it is possible for me to celebrate the preciousness of God and your delighting in God in a way that would make him angry and want to put your minds on high alert so that you don't dispense with every filter that you've learned from the Bible and just become a mindless sponge as I talk. You know, when you, when you lift your hands in passionate worship at this event, you're not being asked, not by Louie, not by David Crowder, not by me or anybody else, to turn your brain off while you feel deeply. Rather, you are being summoned to turn your brain on, think of those lyrics, is that true? If that's true, I'm going to feel it with all my heart. And if it's not, I'm not playing this game. Whether it's Piper speaking or anybody singing, <coughs> that's, what I'm, that's why I'm beginning this way. Drawing your attention to Eliphaz, the fact that he spoke truth, that's a true sentence. And it made God angry. <clears throat> so, even though it made God angry, I want to talk about it. Because it's true. We know it's true because it's all over the Bible. If you lay gold in the dust, the Almighty will be your gold, and you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face 
to God. So I have two questions to pose and try to answer from the Bible. One, what is it like to delight in God? Two, is that delight your highest duty? Those are my two questions. Let me pose them another way. What is the actual experience of enjoying God? What is it? Finding pleasure in God, being satisfied in God. And the reason I ask the question is because I think many believers know how to enjoy pizza, they know how to enjoy football, they know how to enjoy friends, they know how to enjoy sex. And you put that word in joy or delight or be satisfied onto God, and they just, that means nothing. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't relate to God that way. I do stuff because he says to do stuff. Delighting, enjoying, being satisfied. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Is he pizza? Is he football? What do you... What is the actual experience of enjoying God, finding pleasure in God, being satisfied in God? And then second question, is that enjoyment, that delight, that satisfaction your highest God-given obligation? Those are my two questions. If you lay gold in the dust, the Almighty will be your gold. And you will delight, you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. So if God is your gold, he will be your gladness. That's what it says. Matthew 6.21, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That is, if God is your treasure, he will be your pleasure. We're not talking here about the gifts of God, okay? We're talking about God himself. This is the great issue in the book of Job. The great issue. Did Job love God? more than God's gifts. That's the issue in the book of Job. So Satan does not believe that he does love God more than God's gifts, and that's what he's going to do. He's going to show God. He's not real. His joy is in stuff or his wife or his kids or his cattle, not you. So here's what Satan says. Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. 
but you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. That's the issue in the book of Job. In other words, God, Job only fears you because you've given him stuff, you've given him good things, given him health and a family and prosperity. That's why he loves you. Okay, so all of his kids are dead. All of his cattle are stolen. And here's what he says. Job arose and tore his clothes, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Don't you love that song? I'll bet you've sung that and don't have any idea what you're saying. They're dead. She's dead. You are a blessed God. You're a good God. I love you. You've got to be careful what you sing. I love Matt Redman. Thank God for that song. I remember the first time I sang it. Missionary had just come home, and they were right over there, and their dead baby was in the ground two weeks old. And they were singing with their arms stretched out. They knew what it meant. So that's what the book of Job is about. Job, Satan says, you only fear, love, delight in, cleave to God because he gives you children. So Satan goes back to God. He's not persuaded. No God. Yeah, kids are dead. Livestock is gone. Here's what he said. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has, he'll give for his life. You stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, he'll curse you to your face. Wrong again. So you see what's going on in this book, right? You got Satan and God and a man who says he loves God, cleaves to God, fears God. And Satan says, no, he doesn't. He only loves stuff. He only loves his gifts. That's what the book is about. Is Job like the psalmist in Psalm 63? Your steadfast love, O Lord, is better than life. So you've got to choose between life and all the pleasures of it and steadfast love. And the psalmist says, I'll take God and his love and I will die. Is Job like the prophet Habakkuk? My wife and I chose this text for our wedding text 49 years ago. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet 
I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. No food, none, none. Starvation just over the horizon. I have my God. So the question is, is Job like that? Now, Job's responses, as you know, were not perfect. He never cursed God, but he did have to be rebuked for some of the things he said. He passed the test, but he didn't pass it with an A+. There is no doubt what Satan wanted to destroy and what God wanted to exalt. Namely, God is to be treasured. God is to be enjoyed more than his gifts in prosperity and poverty, in health and disease, in life and death. If you lay gold in the dust, the Almighty will be your gold. Then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. So here are my two questions. I'll take them one at a time. Question number one, what is it like to delight in God? What is the experience of being satisfied in God like? The first and most fundamental thing that needs to be said is that pleasure in God, delight in God, satisfaction in God is satisfaction in a person, not a thing or an idea or a set of actions, a person. I wonder, not everybody's like this, but I wonder if you've ever pondered, maybe late at night, looking up at the sky, that for all eternity, for all eternity past, there has been something. always there. Because nothingness can't give rise to something. That's the meaning. That's the meaning of nothingness. It's no thing. It can't do. It can't create. Nothing is no thing. It's nothing. If there is something, there's always been something. That's amazing. Just that that there's always been a reality. Then, have you ever considered that, therefore, there was no time before this reality? There were no set of circumstances. There were no conditions. There were no influences that could make this reality more likely to be one thing than another thing. What it is, it is, and nothing made it what it is. Therefore, the likelihood that it could be one thing and not another thing is just as great as any other thing or person. Therefore, when the Bible reveals in its words and in Jesus Christ, ultimate reality is a person. It's not saying anything inconceivable. It's not saying anything impossible. It's not saying anything improbable. 
That's an awesome thought. And you've got to decide, whoa, is that what's real? Is that ultimate reality, a, a person? Now, maybe, maybe you don't think like that. <laughs> you just go to sleep. That's okay, because when you get up in the morning, what you should do is just start reading your Bible. And you don't need to have any of those thoughts at all to find out there's a person out there, and that person is to be enjoyed. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Psalm 16 again, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for the flowing stream, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 143, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Romans 5, 11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is why Jesus died. You and I, everybody in these rooms, are sinners. We can't come to God and enjoy him. We get incinerated if we come to God. He is holy. can't even look upon evil without rage. And if that's all you are, that's all you get. And so we had to be saved. We had to be redeemed. We needed someone to bear our guilt, bear our condemnation, which Jesus did. And so he reconciled us to a person. He reconciled us to a person. That's how reconciliation happens. And then 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. <laughs> That's why he suffered, to bring us to a person, to bring us to God. Not to get us to heaven, minus God. Get us out of hell, minus God. Get us prosperous, minus God. He died to bring us to a person. So there's no question that any joy that would be ultimate, would be joy in a person. He's to be known. He's to be enjoyed. I said a minute ago, the enjoyment of God is the enjoyment of a person, not the, the enjoyment of a thing or an idea or a pattern of actions. Okay. So if your filters were on, you should say, hmm, hmm. Because that's the way we get to know the person. 
things that he made that taste like him, point to him. Ideas revealed in the Bible. Patterns of activity in history and in the world, which when we see them, we say, I love him because he did that. So right, those things are not God and they're not the end point of our joy, but you would never be joyful in God without things, without ideas, and without actions on his part. Consider these person-revealing actions. This is 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent, okay, there's an action, God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. We know the love of a person by the action of the loving person. We know the power of the person by the action of his creation, Romans 1. We know the wisdom of the person by the purposeful providence in history, Romans 11. We know the justice and righteousness of the person because of the death of Jesus bearing sin and providing righteousness. We know the fullness and faithfulness of the person because he keeps his promises. We know compassion and patience in that person because we know Jesus Christ. We've watched the compassionate Christ. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The same thing is true of things. This is so important. Tune in. The same thing is true of things and experiences in life. They're given by God to show us God through whom we can taste God. We know something of the sweetness of his friendship because we've tasted honey. That's why honey exists. That's the way the Bible uses it. Honey exists to help you know God. We know something of his sustaining richness because we've eaten bread when we're hungry. Good, you know, not fluffy white stuff that you make fish bait out of. It's it's really solid French bread or German bread, you know. If you've eaten that, you know God better, or you're an idolater. We know something of the warmth of his affections because we remember being held by our mother. We know something of the personal depths and exquisite intensity of person-to-person -person pleasure because we have felt sexual desire. That's what sex is for, to know God, taste God. And we know something of his worth because we have coveted gold and even our sins bear witness to his worth. So whatever action is good, in this life, whatever idea is good and true, whatever thing you see or hear or taste or touch, God's creation, all of it, 
is designed by God as a sign and a foretaste of what it's like to enjoy God himself. So crucifixion, creation, providence, covenant, honey, bread, water, sex, mother, gold, these are not God. But they are his gifts. And if our enjoyment, if our enjoyment terminates on them, we are idolaters. We are to move into and through the gifts to him. And they taste a way he tastes. I think one of the best pointers to the taste of the experience of enjoying God is the enjoyment of human people, people you know, people in your family perhaps, or maybe that's not true, people outside your family. So here's, I want you to do a little thought experiment or do it later when you've got a quiet moment. Think of the kindest person you know. Think of the most loving person you know. I'm thinking human person now, just friends, family, or maybe musicians or artists or the most loving person, the wisest person you know, the most patient person you know the most intelligent person you know, the the strongest person you know, the most tender-hearted person, the happiest person, the most peaceful person, the most optimistic person, the meekest person, the most courageous person, the most articulate person, the most, the one who has the best sense of humor, the most generous person, So think of all those people. And then, when you do that, combine them all into one person. All those traits. And then when you do that, increase those traits to perfection in quality. And then increase them to infinite beauty in how they are proportioned and exercised by that person. And then let all that enjoyment of those persons with those excellencies raised to that perfection and that beauty give you a hint of what it is like to enjoy God as a person. And then pray that the Holy Spirit would grant that miracle to happen because none of you enjoys God without the miracle of the Holy Spirit. We are dead to those beauties in God and they are a foreign language to us. So my answer to question number one is that to enjoy God is to enjoy a person who is infinitely all-satisfying in the constellation of his traits that you enjoy in other people. Question number two, is that your highest duty? So sitting there right now, posing yourself the question, when I leave this place, or even as I sit here, what is the highest 
obligation God puts upon me? Is it this? Is it enjoying, delighting in, being satisfied in the person, God, and Jesus Christ, his Son, by the power of his Spirit? Is that my highest duty? And my answer is yes, and I have three reasons. And as I speak them, I hope that you don't feel them as a heavy load, but rather as a light burden and an easy yoke. She said, come to me, and I'll, I'll put a yoke on you for sure, and I'll put a burden on you, but the burden will be light, and the yoke will be easy, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. So my, my prayer for you now, as I give you these three reasons for why it is your highest duty your greatest obligation to be happy in God, rejoice in God, delight in God, be satisfied in God, is not that you would be burdened by this, but freed. I mean, what is more liberating or thrilling or amazing than that God would come to you, a hopeless sinner, point you to his son, Jesus Christ, as the one who bears all your guilt and then gives you this commandment. My first commandment to you, my highest commandment of you to you is that you be supremely satisfied in what is supremely satisfying. I don't think that would feel like a burden. Be supremely satisfied in what is supremely satisfying. That's freedom. So here are my three reasons for why that statement is true, namely this is your highest duty. Number one, Jesus said when asked, which is the great commandment in the law, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the first commandment. So the great and first commandment, according to Jesus, is that you love God. And oh, right here, the flesh, the old unregenerate you, does a horrible thing. Namely, it turns love into deeds, actions. Okay, what do I got to do? I got to do some stuff here now because he said, number one agenda, love me. With all your heart, soul, mind, strength, the essence of loving is not doing. The essence of loving is delighting when God is the object. If you lay gold in the dust, the Almighty will be your gold. Then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Loving God is not first working for God. Somebody right now is quoting in your head, what about John 14, 15? 
If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, what about it? It's massively important to see he's distinguishing the two. If you do the one, you'll do the other. They're not the same. If you love me, you'll do. But doing is not that. This is root. That's fruit. Maybe that's why in the list of heart, soul, mind, strength, in every time that it occurs in the Gospels, heart is first. Because the heart is not an organ of performance. It's an organ of preference. The heart prefers, and then we do stuff in accord with our preferences. And the first commandment is, love him with all your preference. Prefer him above everything. Let him be your gold, your silver, your everything. And it'll change all your doings. But if you try to get that reversed and do because you can't conceive what it means to delight, to prefer, to enjoy, to treasure. You won't be a Christian. That's not Christianity. So that's my first argument for why this is your highest duty. Delighting in God is your highest duty because Jesus said the first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God, and the essence of loving is delighting, leading to doing. Here's number, argument number two. The second commandment is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. It's like it. Like, whoa. This is equally important. And my argument is the way the Bible presents loving people is that authentic, Christ-exalting love for people is the overflow of joy in God. Or it's not love in a biblical sense. Let me read for you two verses which I think are one of the most amazing and beautiful pictures of love between people in the Bible. This is, a, this is a word from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians to think about the way the Macedonian Christians love and then to be like that. So this is a commendation of the Macedonians because of how they are loving. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, listen really carefully. Put every piece together. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty 
have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Joy overflowed in generosity. That's love. Generosity is love. Give yourself and you give things to people who have needs. You're for them. You're there for them. That's what love is. And where does it come from? It comes from joy. Their joy, their abundant joy overflowed in love. Now, here's the reason those two other little phrases that I went with. This joy is not in prosperity because it says they are in extreme poverty. So if you say, i got to have some good circumstances here, get myself happy so I can love people, you won't have Christian love. You'll have circumstance-driven love. We also know it's not because of comforts, because he said they're in extreme affliction, severe affliction. So you got extreme poverty, severe affliction, abundant joy, which means this joy is gospel joy in God. And it overflows in love to other people. Therefore, joy in God is our first obligation because loving people is an equal obligation to loving God. This is huge. You think you love people? You don't love people if you are not satisfied in God. Because Christ is not being exalted, God is not being exalted, and the Bible won't define love without God. It won't define love without Christ. So that's argument number two. Loving people is the overflow of joy in God, and we are bound to love people as the second great commandment. Final argument. The glory of God is the greatest reality in the universe. It's way greater than our joy in God. The greatness of God, the beauty of God is the greatest reality in the universe. Most important. And God has made it plain that we exist to magnify that beauty. You probably could give me the verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you are on the planet eating and drinking and doing everything else, whatever you do, to make God look glorious. That's why you're here. And if you don't, you're failing. And my argument is, that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. That's the banner that flies over my life. That's the message Louis asked me to bring for 20 years to this group. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. There's a verse that got passion started in Louis' heart, namely Isaiah 26, 8, your your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. 
And Louis met with me 21 years ago, maybe 22, and he said, I want you to connect those two. The renown of God, the fame of God, the glory of God, and the desire of the human soul, desperately desire. Our hearts are a desire factory. And I said, I would like to try to do that because that's my life. That's what I aim to do and be all too imperfectly. Now, I could, if we had time, I got four minutes. We're going to make it. I could, if I had time, take you to Philippians 1, 20 and 21, and give you a solid exegetical argument for that statement, namely that Christ is most magnified when Paul is most satisfied in him so that when he lives or dies, he says, gain. I could do that, but instead, I'm going to end with a story. Um, I love this story, and uh, you will enjoy it because you like love stories. And uh, it's about me and my wife, so now everybody's waking up. (laughs) So two weeks ago, we celebrated our 49th wedding anniversary. Thank you on God's behalf. Marriage is about grace and forgiveness. You will find out. So, let's suppose, now remember what I'm doing here with this story. I am trying to make the point that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him, all right? So, I buy 50, because we're in our 50th year of marriage now, okay? Even though it's 49, yes. And I hold these bundle of roses. They cost 200 bucks, right? Give or take. I hold these huge bundle of roses behind my back, and instead of walking in my front door, I ring the doorbell, which is unusual. And she comes to the door and looks puzzled, and I say, happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, <laughs> she says, Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you go to such an expense? And suppose I said, it's my duty. I read it in a book. This is what husbands do. What's wrong with that answer? You're shaking your head. That's right. You should be shaking your head. Okay, I'll I'll show you what's wrong with the answer, and and we'll just rewind. Ding dong. Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you go to such an expense? Well, I couldn't help myself. In fact, I've got a plan for this evening. I want you to go put on something nice, because we're going out because there's nothing I'd rather do than spend the evening with you. It would make me very happy. Do you think, do you think that at that moment she would say, it would make you happy? 
You're always thinking about what makes you happy. <laughs> what about me? Your wife. You think she'd say that when I said, this evening spent with you as an all-satisfying person in my life tonight would make me happy? You think she'd say, all you ever think about is what makes you happy. Why? Because she is glorified when I'm satisfied in her. You know this. You know this in your experience. What you find or she or he in whom you find pleasure makes them your treasure. That's what they feel. I feel treasured right now because you are finding your joy in me. I feel treasured. So does God. That's the point. So don't go to church and say, that's what Christians do. I read it in a book. Ring the doorbell, and when God opens the door, say, nothing would make me happier than to meet you here, because I need you. If you lay gold in the dust, then the Almighty will be your gold, for then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God, and that delight will be in an infinitely beautiful, all-satisfying person, and it will be your highest duty. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I plead with you now for myself and for these friends, these students especially, I plead with you that the miracle would happen in our hearts so that all the delight that we have in the things you've made, which are good things, would not be the termination of our delights. I pray that we would move through the most admirable people in our life and the most admirable things in our life and the most admirable actions that we see you perform. We would move through them all the way up to you and find our treasure and our pleasure in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.